Well, over the last few years we've been uh, working our way through Matthew's Gospel. And uh, it's perhaps a rather strange thing, but uh, the time we've spent in Matthew's Gospel is longer than the earthly ministry of Jesus, which I think is quite strange. Um, but uh, this morning we're, we're... So we finished at chapter 25 last week. We're going to break from that, and just over the next few weeks we're going to be, jump back to the beginning of the Gospel which has been about five years since we last looked at it. Um, so look at the beginning of uh, Matthew's Gospel and read about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ into the world. And so this morning I want us to read uh, uh, Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. And before we read, let's just bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your words and uh, that we can have it in our hands, that we can read it. And we can pay attention to it, and we pray you'd help us to do that this morning. Give us concentration, and uh, may you come by your Spirit and speak into our hearts. In Jesus' name, Amen. So Matthew's Gospel begins like this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. And Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. And Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon. And Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zedok, and Zedok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. I often wonder how people 
read, start reading the Gospel of Matthew, whether you're the kind of person that only properly starts to read the Gospel at verse 18, after we've had this long list of names. And uh, we might skim over the first part, it's kind of a strange way to begin a gospel. Who wants a, a list of names, after all, when you want to get into the meat of the story? And, but importantly, of course, it's, it's not just any old list of names, it's a list of uh, the ancestors of Jesus. It's Jesus' uh, ancestors all the way back to Abraham, some 2,000 years before. The strange thing about it is, of course, that if you were to write a modern biography today, you might put a family tree at the back of the book in an appendix or something, but you wouldn't put it right at the front of a a biography. But Matthew does that with his account of Jesus, which is not truly a biography, it's it's an account, it's a gospel, it's uh, uh, declaring uh, good news about something. But We're left with the question, why does he do that? Why does he list all of those names right at the beginning? And that's a really important question always to be asking about Scripture, is uh, why? Why is he saying this here? Why is he doing this? Why is the writer doing that? Uh, It's very important. We are always asking that why question, uh, because it's only as we begin to dig into it that we begin to realize the significance of the things that are said. Let's understand something about the shape of the passage that we've just read. Uh, Matthew actually says the same thing three times. So in verse 1, he has this core statement, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So it's a genealogy. But then he says more of the same, but in more detail in 2 to 16. So a great long list of names, and he spells out all the details. And then in verse 17, for a third time, he says the same thing, but now in summary. And uh, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and so on, uh, down to Christ. And uh, you know, when I used to work in industry and got training on how to do presentations, they always said, you know, say what you're going to say three times. Tell them what you're going to say, tell them, and then after you told them, tell them what you've just said. As, and that's kind of what... Matthew is doing here. He's telling you three times about the origin, the human origin of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what Matthew is doing here is he is making a link between Jesus and two very important uh, figures in Old Testament history, Abraham and David. And he also points out the deportation uh, of the Jews at the end. We'll come to that uh, later. So it's a sort of three pivot points in the list that he has made. And he is drawing attention to Ab- uh, Abraham and then to David, uh, not because they are perfect people. Uh, they're actually sinners, of course. But in those lives of those two great figures of Jewish history... God stepped in in the most amazing ways and made promises about his plan of redemption which would come to fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so these two figures are central uh, to, to the history and the significance 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, Matthew is not simply telling a biography. He's not telling a great story of Jesus' personal life. But he is showing its place in the great history of God's purposes of redemption. Of which Jesus Christ is the central character. Indeed, Jesus Christ is the climax of that story. And so I want us to consider why it's important to see Jesus as the son of Abraham. And then the son of David. And then some other implications uh, from that. uh, As we look at the list of names that uh, Matthew lists here. And the first thing to say about this Jesus is that he is Jesus for all the nations. He is Jesus for all the nations. This comes out by the way in which he is presented as the son of Abraham. Now who is Abraham? Why does he matter in the history of God's redemption? Well, Abraham appears, of course, in Genesis chapter 11, about 2,000 years before Christ. And he's descended from Noah. There's nothing particularly remarkable about Abraham and his family. But what's significant about Abraham is what God did in his life. That God made a promise to Abraham. And you may like to turn to it in Genesis chapter 12. Always good to turn in the Bible to some of these verses and look them up and be convinced of what I'm saying to you. Um, Good habit to have. And uh, God says to Abraham, out of nowhere, he's called Abraham, and he says to him, Go from your country and your kindred and to your father's house and to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and in him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. See, that's a promise, a really significant promise. Now look at that promise with me. Three parts to it. Firstly, land. God was going to give him a land, a place of rest, a place of abundance. Second, he is going to be a great nation. So from his body is going to come a great nation. It means he's going to have children greater than could be numbered. Thirdly, third part of it, he was going to be a blessing to the nations. Not just his own family is going to be blessed, but he is going to, his family is going to be a blessing to the nation. Through him, there's going to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth through the descendants of Abraham. That's quite a staggering statement, isn't it? Through you, all the nations are going to be blessed. And this is the beginning of the covenant God makes with Abraham. And over successive chapters, God reiterates it and expands upon it that God is going to bring about his blessing to the nations. Why is that relevant to us? Well, of course, it's fulfilled in the gospel. 
the Apostle Paul, teaching, reflecting on this, says a remarkable thing. In Galatians 3.16, he says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It doesn't say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. It's singular in the Greek. It's difficult to tell in English. One offspring. And as history unfolds, you see, from the time of Abraham, God was fulfilling... Yes, to a certain extent, he was fulfilling his covenant promises in the physical descendants of Abraham and creating a people. And we should remember that uh, believers and their children matter in the Bible. And uh, that's a thread that's all the way through the scripture. But also, through this mass of people called Israel, God, God is forming a true Israel made up of ethnic Israelites and Gentiles. And the key to that expansion of the the gospel and the message and the blessing of God is the coming of Christ, of Jesus Christ. Because it's through this one man that all the nations will be blessed. Don't we see that? Don't we see that in the way that the gospel has gone forth? And gone out. It's the great story of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's that death and the resurrection of Christ is a factor that propelled the church out into the world. It was so convincing and so compelling to people that they went out and proclaimed the gospel and were willing to die for it. But through that mission, men and women were gathered in to the people of God became the true Israel, the Israel of God. And so the the church expands from Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And here we are in Solihull today. The gospel is here in Solihull. To the ends of the earth. Solihull's the ends of the earth, eh? And here we are. And the gospel's gone across the world to China, to America, to India to Africa, to all the ends of the earth, everywhere. There's still many unreached peoples, but in every part of the world, the gospel is going forth in fulfillment of that promise. And this is the great news, isn't it? The great news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the blessing promised to Abraham. That in the midst of the mess of humankind, and don't we see the mess of humanity as we look at our TV screens and watch the news and scroll on our phones and find the mess that is going on all over the world, even here in the West Midlands. In the face of that, there is a God who is unutterably holy and righteous and good who stands against humanity in His holiness And yet also provides the answer to that mess of humanity. That he makes a way possible for salvation. Which he promised in Abraham and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That there is a savior who has opened up the way for people to come 
and to trust him. And that through faith we become his children. By faith. And enter into the kingdom of heaven. What an amazing thing it is for the Lord Jesus Christ to come promised from of old. Through Abraham. So here's Jesus, the son of Abraham. The fulfillment of all those promises. Secondly. Jesus rules over all. Jesus rules over all. Jesus is described as the son of David. And David was a a much more significant figure in some ways because he was a king. He was a king of Israel. He lived about a thousand years before Christ. And he was a king that for a time at least uh, subdued all his enemies. And uh, there was peace in the kingdom of Israel. And by the time of David, it looked like, it looked as though two elements of God's promises to Abraham had been already fulfilled. There was the land, the land of Israel, and there was a great nation, the people of Israel. But that's not enough for God. There has to be more. And God steps in with more promises. And so in 2 Samuel, Chapter 7, God comes. So 2 Samuel chapter 7 begins like this. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, Nathan the prophet comes. And then in verse 12 he says, God says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And of course in the first instance that's fulfilled in Solomon. And yet the kingdom will be established forever. At some point there is going to be an everlasting king. In an everlasting kingdom. Now as the story of 2 Samuel uh, plays out. And the story goes into Kings. The books of Kings. You see it's a a bit of a a strange story. You 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 begin to wonder. Just imagine all these kings coming after David. And maybe reflecting on this promise. Maybe they remember the promise that was given to their, their ancestor David. And maybe those kings might be thinking, is it me? Am I the king that was promised? And it's quite possible that uh, Herod at the time of Jesus, who was king over Judea, rather thought of himself as the fulfillment of the Messiah. That's why he, one of the reasons why I think he was involved in such great building projects. You know, building the whole temple complex. The massive temple complex that developed in his time. And there was a group of uh, people called the Herodians. uh, No doubt people who thought he was the one. Herod was the one who would come. In the time of Jesus, Jesus was dealing with the Herodians. But Matthew tells us the true Messiah, the true king of kings, was not any of those former kings, but the true king 
is King Jesus. And that's actually what Gabriel says to Mary in Luke chapter 1, verses 32-33. Gabriel says to Mary, this son that you're going to have, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give to him the throne of David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. That's Jesus. The fulfillment of the promise to David. Jesus is the inaugurator of a new kingdom. A kingdom of God. A kingdom of heaven. Not of this world. A kingdom. A heavenly kingdom. A kingdom of power and glory. Led by a king with power and resources to defeat not, mere, not a mere nation or group of nations but all the powers and principalities that hold people in slavery, the power of sin and death and hell, that by which everyone is held unless they come to the new king, Jesus Christ. He has the power to destroy the works of the devil and his kingdom. Jesus has the power to release captives from that kingdom of the devil. Jesus has the power to deliver them safely and surely into glory forever. That's the kind of king we need, isn't it? The kind of king that we can worship. And I want to ask you this morning, do you know that power today? Do you know that power of a transformed life? The power of release from slavery into bondage of your sin and your death ultimately? Do you have this power? Do you believe that this fallen world cannot satisfy your dreams and desires. But only Jesus Christ can. So Matthew introduces us to this Jesus. The one who would bless the nations. And have power to bring his kingdom in and rule and reign forever. Jesus the King. The Son of David. Well, Here's the third thing about this genealogy. And the thing I want to draw out here is how Jesus identifies with all of mankind. With mankind, This Jesus is not an abstract idea. This is no saviour who stands apart from his fallen creation. This is a saviour who has come into human existence. Look at this genealogy with me. And you'll notice some uh, familiar figures. We've already dealt with Abraham. Uh, You've seen Isaac and Jacob. You might remember Boaz in the story of Ruth. uh, One of the great stories of the Bible, love stories of the Bible. You'll know the story of David and Solomon. We've been looking at those at Solomon recently. Uh, Or Zerubbabel. It's been a while since we've come across Zerubbabel in the ministry here, but uh, Zerubbabel was one who led a band of uh, Jews back from exile in Babylon, back to Jerusalem, to begin to rebuild the city and rebuild the temple, uh, and so on. And then, of course, uh, and you can read all about that in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And then, of course, there's there's Mary and Joseph that uh, we all know. And all the rest of the names that maybe you didn't recognize, they're all in the Bible, some, in the Old Testament somewhere. 
But there's some surprising features. Let me just uh, mention a couple of them. Uh, first of all, let me mention the, the prominence of women in this uh, list. In verse 3, there's Tamar. Tamar had children by Judah, one of the twelve uh, tribes of, uh, heads of the tribes of Israel. But the story is actually a sordid one. You ever read the story of Tamar? Tamar was the wife of Judah's son, Er. And Er was killed. But she didn't have any children, Tamar. So she, and the only man in her life was her father-in-law, Judah. And so she hatched a plot. And she disguised herself and met Judah at the side of the road. And Judah thought she was a cult prostitute. And Judah decided to sleep with her. And so she conceived and gave birth to twins. And there's so many laws of God that are broken in that. So many things have gone wrong. And yet there they are. There is Tamar in the line of Judah. In the line of, sorry, the line of Jesus. Somebody who committed many sins. And then there's the wife of Uriah. Uh, who's not named here, but uh, is Bathsheba, of course. And that's another episode in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And David, at the height of his power, got lazy. And one lazy afternoon, yeah, when, when he should have been with his armies, you know, he, he's on the top of his, his house, his palace, and he's looking out and he sees this beautiful woman. And uh, he takes a fancy to her. And uh, he gets his way with her. Gets her pregnant. And then tries to cover it up, eventually orchestrating the death of her husband. So the, the news wouldn't come out. Another sordid mess. And it's possible perhaps to trace the downfall of Israel back to that act of unfaithfulness on the part of uh, David in taking this woman to himself. And yet here's David and Bathsheba in the line of Jesus. And then there's other two women Rahab, we're not certain exactly who that was. It's, some have equated it, her with the only other Rahab in the Bible, the Rahab of Jericho in the book of Joshua. But she was a Canaanite and she was a prostitute. Or Ruth, a godly convert to God by her mother Naomi, yet she was a Moabite, not an Israelite. And so... There's all these women with strange backgrounds and strange life circumstances in the line of Jesus. But not only women, but there's a second feature of this. What about all those kings who led people into pagan worship that are listed here in defiance of God, in defiance of the God who had been so good to them? And there were some good men. There was Hezekiah and there was Josiah. But on the whole, the, the history of the kings is like, if you draw a graph of it, it's a graph of a downward decline, spiritually speaking, of going after other gods and infidelity to God. And it resulted ultimately in the destruction of Israel and the exile of the people at the hands of the Babylonians. So the point is that this genealogy 
is a list, the whole list is full of the muck and the mire of human existence. And if I were to write a book, you know, if, if I were to write a, a biography of Jesus that I wanted to, to, by which I wanted to convince people to believe in him, I think I would probably want to kind of avoid all the mucky parts and try and uh, make it a, a great hagiography, you know, a great uh, exaltation of all the good things about Jesus and forget all the, the questionable things about him, about his background. Matthew doesn't do that. God doesn't do that. Matthew seems to make a point of including all of this in the text. And he's not ashamed of it. He's not ashamed of it. What what can we learn from this then? Let me just point out three things that we can learn from this rather strange genealogy. First of all, the Son of God was willing to identify with sinful humanity. Humanity is a mess. It's broken. It's sinful. It's full of suffering. It's full of misery. All because of the choices and decisions that people make to avoid God. Because people have this amazing propensity to try to live life without God in it. Oh, I can get on without you. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Let's just have fun while we're here. We've only got one life, live it, says the bumper sticker. And that's what people do. And we see that here in this genealogy. And yet, Jesus Christ enters into that. Into that muck and mire of human existence to be a saviour. He's willing to take upon himself human flesh. That's what Paul says. The Apostle Paul says in his letter to the Romans, he says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. You see, it is necessary for Jesus Christ to come in the likeness of sinful flesh. He wasn't himself sinful, but he was in the likeness of sinful flesh. He was fully human. To be fully human. So that he could then condemn sin in his flesh. How's that? Through the cross. And he did all this and became a worthy saviour. Jesus identified with the need of humanity. Here's the second thing we can learn from this. It's interesting, isn't it, how Israel, the nation of Israel, had to become nothing for this to happen. That Israel had to become nothing to prepare the way for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the significance of the deportation is to, uh, to Babylon. Because the pride of the nation had to be broken They had to become nobodies in the world. So that out of that nothingness, God would manifest his glory in the most amazing and remarkable way. And so you find in in prophecy, like Isaiah 53, for example, uh, 
Isaiah writes about the coming servant of God who would suffer at the hands of evil men and actually suffer at the hand and the will of God for the sake of evil people. And so Isaiah 53 says, He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. Not out of rich soil, not out of prosperity of a nation, but actually out of a desert. This is what Israel had to become, to be a desert, so that Jesus could be like a root out of dry ground and come up. And God would do great things in this desert. And that's often God's way, isn't it? Often the way he works in our lives, he brings us low to raise us up. And here's the third thing about this that we can learn. The whole story teaches us about time and God's purposes. God's not actually in a hurry. I don't know if you noticed that. God's not in a hurry. He's very patient. That's part of his mercy to us. But we must never assume that he, because he's patient and he takes his time, that he has forgotten all that he promised. I think it must have been possible for the people of God to to forget the word of God. For them to begin to believe, perhaps, that the promises were not going to happen. I mean, you think about that 400 years before the last prophet and the coming of Jesus, and nothing happened, no revelation, nothing, 400 years. And you can just imagine generation after generation going through and thinking, yeah, nothing's going to happen. But it will be fulfilled, and Jesus Christ has come. Christ has more promises yet to fulfill. He will build his church. He will return again. There will be a separation. That's what we were looking at in Matthew 25 last week. The great separation. There will be a separation. Some will go to hell who have not trusted, trusted God, trusted the Lord Jesus Christ. Some will go to heaven and belong to him forever. But friends, listen to me. Have you forgotten the promises of God? Have you assumed that he is not going to answer those promises? That he's forgotten about them? That he's, he's let them wither on the vine as it were and he's gone off and done something else no don't think that he will fulfill his promises they will come Jesus will come again judgment will come and the time to prepare for that judgment is to be right with the Jesus who came first of all in humility and nothingness to save the muck and the mire and solve the muck and mire problem that we have is Jesus Jesus is the answer that we need Jesus has come the son of Abraham the fulfillment of all the promises to bless the nations Jesus has come the son of David who brings an everlasting kingdom which will never be destroyed this is the one who has entered into our existence the God man who has come down to be amongst us And to suffer in our place. That's our Jesus. That's why Matthew puts this genealogy here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this word. And uh, though it at first sight looks like just an uninteresting list of names, and yet it tells us so much about your purposes. And so, Father, we pray that every single person here today 
would know this Lord Jesus Christ and know the salvation that's in him. For we ask in his name. Amen.